Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries. Very glad to be here with you on a Friday, as we are every Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern on this fine live streaming rockfin.com. Uh, I have a, a returning guest. I'm just tickled pink to have him back. I was so honored to have him on before, and I'm even more honored to have him back. G. Edward Griffin has uh, been around this planet for a long time, and he's looking great, talking great. He's been uh, doing lots of great work for decades, and he's probably most known for writing the creature, creature uh, uh, from Jekyll Island about the, the Federal Reserve. So, it, Mr. Griffin, welcome back to the show. Can't tell you how happy I am to have you. Well, thank you, Don. It's good to be back. No, it's it's just wonderful, and I I don't I don't know how many of these interviews you give, but people are amazed uh, when you when you come on, and uh, it's you know I feel like I've I, I've been you know start, started out in the JFK assassination uh, with Mark Lane, working as a teenage volunteer for the Citizens Committee of Inquiry as, as a teenager in the mid seventies, and uh, so I've been around a long time. I'm not used to somebody to being around you know that much less longer than someone like you. You've been doing this for quite a while. So I guess what we'll go over a little bit again, how, um, and then we'll just kind of talk about issues that, that are going on now, but uh, we went over this a little bit last time, but for those people that might've missed it, you got, you got started down this wayward uh, path, I guess. Uh, was it was the sixties, I guess, 1960s. When, when did you begin this, this journey uh, down the, I guess, political extremism or whatever they want to call it. <laughs> well, Don, that first step was taken in uh, 1960. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that time, I was uh, just part of the unwashed masses, you might say. I was a right. young guy, had a new family. It was all wrapped up in my family and my career and looking good, trying to make money. Didn't have a thought in my head about anything outside of that. I, I never mm -hmm. thought about having an obligation to anything outside of my family and uh, and me. I was a self-centered mm -hmm. kid and. Um, wanted to make a lot of money and that was it very materialistic and then the whole thing changed when i picked up a little a little magazine called the free man while i was waiting in a waiting room for a, a client of mine I had a corporate client in los angeles and i was there a little bit early so i was sitting in the waiting room and there's a stack of little little magazines about the shape and size of a reader's digest and it was called the free man and uh, it was published by the Foundation for uh, Foundation for um, Free Education or something like that. Uh, Foundation for Education. Anyway, it was in Irvington on Hudson, and it was the first time I read an article that was written from the perspective of free enterprise and laissez-faire. Of course, I'd gone through the school system, so you know that's a pretty safe place to be. You never read anything mm -hmm. dealing with free enterprise in there. So this was it's kind of jolted me. I thought, gee, this is really interesting. So I typed a copy of it. It was obvious. They were obviously out there to take because there was a whole stack of them, the same issue. And um, I felt a little bit guilty about it, but I thought, hey, they wanted me to take this. So I did. And uh, then when I went in and talked to the president of the company, I told him what I'd done. He said, oh, take it, keep it. So I read it. 
And uh, it was the beginning of a long journey, Don. First of all, I, I subscribed to that little magazine and read everything they had. I, um, I even bought all their back issues. I, they came in bound volumes, but the last two or three years were the back issues. I read them, I devoured them like candy, and I thought, uh, this is refreshing. But it was all about, uh, all kind of about uh, principles and theories and things. It was the, the word conspiracy you wouldn't find in, uh, in any of those pages. The idea was that the world was going to pot because it had to. It was just a cycle, a historical cycle of ups and downs and empires rising and cresting and crumbling and a new empire. That's the kind of attitude it was. And I thought it was, of course, I know that that's true. I do now anyway. But I didn't realize that in addition to that, there's another truth. And I didn't know until later, about a year later, when I picked up another little pamphlet someplace else about uh, the United Nations. And it, that, that pamphlet offended me because it was saying that the UN was um, not our last best hope for peace, that it was a fraud, <laughs> that everything it did was the opposite of what it said it was doing. And I was deeply offended because well, I came through school and I knew that the UN was our last best hope for peace and that they, sure. you know, they really cared about people like me. Anyway, that was my second step. And that's when I began to discover that there were there were organizations and cabals and individuals all over the place that really wanted to destroy the existing system. They, they were in a hurry. They didn't want to wait a, a 500 years for it to just gradually crest and destroy itself. They wanted to destroy it now so they could rebuild on the ashes a system that they had in mind that they thought was a lot better. So that was my second step. And with that, I really got into it, and I realized that there were, as I say, combines or groups of people, which today we would call the deep state or the one-worlders and things like that. There was the Communist Party, of course, back in 1960 and 61. Communism seemed to be taking over the world. Uh, they'd taken out you know, huge blocks of real estate all around the world, and I was concerned about that. And, and of course, we had just fought a war to defeat fascism, so I thought that was dead. Little did I realize that all these philosophies were all the same, communism, Nazism, fascism, socialism, New Dealism, even Americanism, in some people's mind, the principles that they were advocating and that they called Americanism were not the free enterprise, the laissez-faire concepts I was reading about, but they were talking about the old, uh, exactly the same thing that Adolf Hitler and Mussolini believed in, except they, they were waving the American flag underneath it. And, um, so anyway, I was, I was learning all of this stuff. And finally, I got to the point where my crusader gene began to vibrate. And I discovered something about me that I didn't know existed. And that is that I did care about things outside my own immediate world. And I did worry about my, not only my family, but my community, my nation, even the world. And that's when I decided I had to do something about this. So I did a very crazy thing. I quit my job in the corporate world. My wife almost had a cow because she, she didn't know how we were going to put food on the table. And I didn't either, but I thought, oh, it'll work out somehow. And well, you, 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 have, you have lots of fans already over here. I'm not even looking at the main chat room and the YouTube chat room. Alan Holman, say they're 2011 or 2012. G. Edward Griffin's newsletter published a letter I wrote to them, which included an etched file of a version of a book I wrote about cancer. He still appreciates that. that everybody else in here is, is excited about it. Uh, as I told you, you know, I, I got my start with uh, 
the JFK assassination. That was my wheelhouse issue. But I kind of went a little bit into your world when I, I accidentally ordered a book that I thought was about JFK, uh, None Dare Call a Conspiracy. And uh, of course, it was by Gary Allen. I'm sure you're very familiar with that. And I got it. I said, what is this? You know, and I I, I learned about the Council of Foreign Relations and all of this stuff. And then I started to, I remember some, some of my young friends and I, uh, we got a hold of the membership list of the Council of Foreign Relations and everything. So they talk, talk a little bit about because you, you, I think you were affiliated with the John Burt Society for a while. And they were the ones that really, I think, uh, publicized the, uh, the Council of Foreign Relations and everything. But uh, talk a little bit about how you came to uh, be affiliated with them. Well, that's what I decided I had to do something about it. Uh, I ran into the Burt Society. And uh, at the time, nobody knew much about it. So I didn't have to worry about the uh, pre-existing reputation that it uh, uh, was dumped on it later when it became um, began, began to be very effective in awakening people. But then, of course, the major media began to attack it, and they, they convinced most people that it was anti-Semitic, it was un-American, yeah. that it was a bunch of kooks, that it was uh, racist. And, you know, they dump all the words on it that they do today that they dump words on any group or individual they don't like. Well, they did that to the Birch Society in spades. And um, by that time, I had accepted a, a, a job with them. I started off as a volunteer um, chapter leader to form a little group of people in my community, to, like a little study group. And later, we became an, an act, a more of an action group. But uh, then we succeeded pretty well, and they asked me to be a coordinator for the region. So I did. I took the job and then I traveled around the country and I was uh, sort of a major coordinator and I was climbing that ladder. Uh, of course, there's no money involved to speak of, but it was better than being a volunteer. At least I could put some food on the table. And um, so that's what I was doing. Yeah, I was part of the staff of the society for a couple of years. And then I went off on my own to do production, video production and things like that and continue the work in, in ways that I felt I was better suited for. So yeah, I, at that time, it was interesting because um, when the attack on the Birch Society came out in full force, I mean, all the major newspapers and and, uh, and the uh, media outlets were condemning the Birch Society as being a bunch of <clears throat> little old ladies in tennis shoes at best and a bunch of evil doers at worst. And all of a sudden people I had known for a long time began to avoid me and um, my wife, uh, told me one day she went to a church meeting and nobody wanted to sit next to her. So it was that, it was that bad, and even worse than that. And of course that didn't last very long, but it was, I got a good taste of, of how our enemies can mold public opinion and sell a lie so easily because they own the media. You know, people believe everything they, they read in the newspaper or watch on television, no matter how absurd it is, they believe it because it's on television, you know? And that's what we had to live through. Well, bless your bless your wife, because uh, I think we talked a little bit about this before, but so many people um, <clears throat> that I interview, uh, their families abandoned them. You know, they become black sheep. And uh, especially, mm -hmm. I mean, you, if you've seen Oliver Stone's JFK uh, <clears throat> with Jim Garrison, uh, that's very accurate about his wife was, you know, at one point he said, I can't fight the whole world and you too. I mean, she's mad. You know, why are you doing disrupting our family all these powerful people and uh so his marriage broke up and so many other people i've talked to they're 
their marriages broke up. So I, it's wonderful that yours did. I think we talked before. Your family has stayed loyal to you, right? None of, none of them think you're a kook talking about the, the criminal banking system and all this stuff. They, they don't. They, they think you're uh, you're just lovable dad or granddad, right? Well, uh, not all. Uh, I had. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, my in-laws didn't go along with it. They thought I was <laughs> way. <laughs> they thought the wheels would come off my wagon. And they let me know it, and it was it was difficult. But they they didn't abandon us. They just were trying to knock sense into us, you know. Like you got to come to your senses, Ed. You got to get out of that that kooky stuff and get a good job with a big corporation, you know. Right. And you know, get a job and, and climb to the to the top and get security. And they they wanted me to go back to the life that I had left, and um, of course I didn't do it. And um, so I wasn't very popular. Uh, by, by with the in-laws at that time. Yeah. Oh, I, I can imagine how, how now how, when the creature from Jekyll Island came out, that's probably, I think that's your most successful book. I believe that's one I, I certainly heard about. How did that, did you make any money off that? How well did that sell? Oh, well, that book amazed us all, especially me, because it, I don't know exactly how many copies it sold, but I would guess that we probably crested more than a million copies so wow. far and uh, you know that wow. for that kind of a book it's an upstream book first of all and the the establishment doesn't want people to to know about what's in that book so it's gotten a lot of bad press the only way we've sold it is through word of mouth and we've done very little advertising if any i think we tried it a couple of times and it didn't work so we just gave up on it but the first thing you know bookstores were calling us and saying we want to carry your book we couldn't sell it to them we called them and they said no no you're not a big enough company, a big publishing company. We can't, we can't stock your book. It's too much trouble. And so then, after a while, they started calling us and said, "We'd like to order your book." I said, "How come you want to order my book now? We didn't before." And they, yeah. they say, "Well, people are coming in and asking for it." So that's <laughs> that's how it went. People who read the book that would pass it along to their friends and recommend it, and that's how it's always been. So we finally, after all these years, I'm sure we're over a million copies. But that includes wow. about six editions outside of the U.S. We've, we've had um, publishers in other countries that wanted to publish that book as well in their own language. That's an amazing accomplishment. That's incredible. What, what year was it published first? Uh, I think it was 1969, if I remember correctly. Okay, okay. Well, I tell people all the time because I've had six books published now. And uh, you know, I can tell you, it's like, if it happened 50 years ago, there, there are just so many fewer people today that read books. You know, there are more back then. So uh, it's still a million copies. Is, that's just astonishing. I did uh, talk a little bit about, just, just about what that book is about if people haven't read it. Well, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve, is a... It's a whodunit. It's, I guess, technically, it's a nonfiction history book, but I wrote it as a whodunit because when I got into the story, I thought this isn't really about how banking works and what the discount rates are and what the policies are and the history of how this evolved, although it, it is that, but that's not the interesting part to me when I got into it. I saw this as one of the greatest crimes ever committed in all history. And it was done at the top, you know, it was legalized plunder. 
And I thought, this is a crime. So I decided to write the book as though I was writing a, a whodunit. We got to find out what is the crime, who committed it, how they did it. And uh, so that's what I did. I tried to make a story out of it and still keep it historically as accurate as humanly possible. So that's how I wrote it. And I think it, uh, it appealed to people because it wasn't too loaded with dry information about discount rates, you know, and, uh, and how many members are on the board of directors of this region and that, and how many regions there are and so forth. I just, I did it as a, as a, as a story of crime and, and who did it and how we, how we have to undo it. So, um, so it's really about the Federal Reserve System on the One surface. Of the great crimes of that, all time. Deeper than that, it's about central banking. That's what they call it, which is a, a misnomer because central banking merely means um, a relationship between private banking cartels and the governments. When the governments and the banking cartels and their nations go into partnership, then they call it a central bank. And uh, that sounds very very important. I mean, banks are important. So certainly a central bank has to be even more important. But it's it's neither a bank uh, or anything you can imagine. It's a unique creature by itself. It's a cartel that's in partnership with the government. And they run the, the monetary system. They have their hands on it. They determine how much of it can be created and at what time, what the interest rates are. And they completely manipulate the nation indirectly by manipulating the money supply. And the most, the most important part of that story is not so visible. But when you, most people say, yeah, they have all the money. They, they can buy anything they want to. That's true. Now, if they think through what they just said, they would realize that they can also buy politicians, which they do very easily. And if they can buy politician, politicians, they can buy the government. So you come to that realization that these cartels uh, actually are running the government. Government does not regulate the central banks like most people think. Central banks regulate the government. Absolutely. Well, then the Federal Reserve has had you know some some high profile critics over the year. The first the first ones would have been uh, Lewis McFadden in Congress, and then you had uh, Wright Patman, and then of course Ron Paul most recently. Um, today, what what do you think? The obviously the federal I call it. It's a counterfeit banking. It's the, what they do to me is indistinguishable from counterfeiting. They create money out of nothing. But what do you think about the push that's going on now? Uh, it looks like we're really heading for something even worse than the Federal Reserve, if you can believe it, and that's digitalized currency tied to a social credit score. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you just described it pretty well. It's even worse. And that's the short version of it. Uh, but people want to know, well, how could it be worse? Or what? what maybe they don't even know that. What we have right now is bad, but uh, it's certainly going to be different, and uh, they're moving as quickly as they can in that direction. So I think your listeners who are not already familiar with what's going on, we probably should outline that at least briefly. Uh, yes. The old monetary systems of the world are being destroyed right now, deliberately, calculatedly, and scientifically destroyed. They're doing this on purpose. They don't want the old systems anymore. They do not want currency. They do not want you and me to have money in our pocket. They don't want to have uh, even in a bank account that we control. They, they want to give us an account and we'll be very happy because they just gave us money. Oh, well, how kind, how generous. Oh, they gave us money. It's digital money, but that's okay. We can spend it just the same as, I mean, 
Most of our money today is digital too, because it's credit card. So it, it would work a lot like that, except when you look at the fine print and you see how the whole thing is coming about, it won't be our money, it'll be their money. And we can use it as long as we behave. And if we don't behave and we keep talking like you and I are talking, we won't get any of it. And if we get it, it'll be under very severe conditions. And that's where the credit score comes in to, to determine how we behave. And if they don't like us for any reason, they'll just find some reason to say that we are antisocial or we're a domestic terrorist or we're insane yeah. or, we're in, or we're infected with a, with a virus or something. And we have to be isolated and cut off from the rest of society. And they'll make it sound like they're doing it for the good of the people. But it's really, it's the same old con game. It's the, it's the rulers, the masters versus the slaves. That's where we're headed with it, with a new central bank digital currency. It won't be ours. It'll be theirs. And we will be able to, uh, to live only as long as we obey their orders. Because if they don't like what we're doing or how we're thinking, they'll cut us off of all economic transactions. Right. And we'll have no way to feed ourselves or our family. We won't be able to pay rent. We won't have shelter. We won't have health care. We won't have clothing. We'll be like little beggars sitting out in the street with a hat on the sidewalk asking for donations. Except even that won't work because the people walking by won't have anything to put into the hat. There'll be no money that they can yeah. drop into the hat. Everybody will be on the same system. And it only is workable through the digital currencies. So that's what, that's what they want. That's where we're headed if we don't stop it. And I would say that it's the most important thing in our lives right now. Those of us who value freedom and don't want to be slaves, it's the most important thing is to stop this quickly. Because once it gets into place, it's very difficult to see how it would ever unwind. Yeah, and I it's it, it's so it's terrifying as you note. I mean, somebody like uh, yourself, and certainly somebody like me, I'm I do a weekly show, I do lots of other interviews, um, and I write regularly on Substack. Not to mention my books, I, I wouldn't have any. They would never give me any money. I wouldn't have access to anything. I I would be homeless. I mean, that's that's the reality of the situation if they tied it to a credit score. So. It's a way, I guess, you know, isn't this really just kind of a, a new way to censor? And to me, it'd be the, the hardest censorship to fight. If they're tying your ability to get shelter and food to what you're saying, and that's what they would be doing, right? If you're not having access to it at all. And do, I, I don't, do you think there's enough opposition to this amongst the, our, our horrible political leadership to stop it? Well, that's a good question. Opposition. What kind of opposition? I think almost everybody in their right mind would be opposed to it. But the question is, what are they going to do about it? Are they going to sit back and say, gee, how is this going to all turn out? They're going to say, I'm really worried about this. And then they'll go watch Dancing with the Stars. Well, that's not the kind of opposition that it's going to take to stop it. it the kind of opposition it's going to take to stop it where <laughs> people like you and me and millions and millions of other people, the majority, finally decide to get together and in unison create some kind of a a social and political uh, juggernaut to just break this thing apart. We can't let it happen. We have to stop it one way or the other. And But that's not going to happen with people who want to sit by and uh, talk about it and are afraid of saying something that's controversial or afraid of offending somebody or afraid of what their employer will say. Now, it gets pretty hard because you've got you to stick yourself right out there in the face of opposition and, and your employer may not like it 
what are you going to do then? You're going to buckle under? Right. Well, that's that means you've already that means you've already lost. That means you're already a slave. That means and you're they've already, already in the system. Uh, and they've already established a precedent for that over the last few years, especially once the uh, COVID hit. Uh, I don't know how many number of people were uh, fired, canceled because uh, someone complained to their work or about, you know, why are you why are you employing this guy? Look what he said on social media. And every time the employer collapsed and fired them. Yeah. So they're already willing to do it. It's just it's. But this is the next step. If you literally have yeah. your ability to your whatever savings you have or whatever. I mean, it's just it's. Yeah. But well, people, I guess what I you're saying people understand. You're saying this is about as serious as it gets, about as serious as a heart attack, as they say. So uh, when we talk about these issues, I hope everybody thinks in the back of their mind, okay, today and tomorrow, what am I going to do about this? Don't just think about it and watch it come. Don't just stand on the tracks and watch the locomotive come towards you. You got to figure out how to get off of the tracks or how to divert that locomotive onto a different track or how to stop the locomotive. You've got three choices, otherwise you're through. And you've got to do something. And that's my point. Well, you must really, at, at this point, you're watching this as long as you've been talking about it. Uh, and you're kind of seeing everything. I know from my standpoint, I'm looking at it and I I kind of expected something like this to happen. I didn't think sourcing anything like COVID, but, you know, we talk about, I'm sure you heard of the upright spike they used to talk about in the 80s and 90s, how this economy couldn't survive. But then no one foresaw the 90s uh, dot-com boom that I think artificially kept things afloat for a while. But we we knew that you can't have the, the kind of a casino economy we have, a house of cards, whatever you want to call it. So it, this was bound to happen, but now it's happening. And as you mentioned earlier, about they want it. They really want it to happen now. Don't don't you get the impression that they are purposely everything that they're doing, they are trying to destroy and bring everything down? Absolutely, that's not the impression. That's their strategy, and they've even said so. Uh, and in fact, that's a part of my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I did a, a chapter, as I recall, a whole chapter on um, the Fabian Society in England, Fabian Socialist Society which goes back a couple of hundred years. And um, it, um, it's kind of the granddaddy of the more visible uh, socialist organizations, was created by very wealthy and very well-known people. And they just had nothing to do. Uh, they didn't have to work, they had plenty of money. So they dreamed up ways to improve the world. And they all got the idea that socialism was a good idea, as long as they ran it, of course, they had to be, the, somebody has to run socialism and they're gonna live better than the people that are being benefited, quote unquote. So they all became socialists and their favorite organization was the Fabian Society. And um, to cut to the chase, uh, if you remember in the book, uh, I had a photograph uh, and a drawing of the uh, stained glass window that was in their headquarters building, their home, where they, um, it's called the Webb House, Sydney, and I've forgotten the other guy. Anyway, the, the last name was Webb, very wealthy family. Oh, yes, Sydney. So there was their home that they donated to the Fabian Society. And in that home, they put a stained glass window. And um, as, as you recall, all kinds of symbolism in it. And uh, one of them in the center of the symbol was an anvil. And on top of the anvil was the earth, big globe. And there were two characters on either side with sledgehammers. And they were bashing the heck out of the earth on this anvil. And then there's that, that line underneath it or above it 
I guess it was above the, the top of the whole thing, comes from Omar Khayyam. I'm going to murder this line now, but it goes something like this. Dear love, if thou and I could conspire to grasp this sorry thing entire, would we not smash it to bits and then remold it closer to the heart's desire? Yeah. And there you have it. There is yeah. the strategy right there. You're going to yeah. smash the earth to bits, not because you don't like the earth, but you want to rebuild it. And so you have to get rid of all of the old order. That has always been the strategy at the foundational level of all of these people who want to rebuild a collectivist new world order. They have to destroy the old order. So they talk about helping you, talk about restoring, you know, prosperity and all that thing. They're lying through the teeth because they want poverty. They want destruction. They want wars. Yeah. They, want, they want people on their knees. They want America on her knees, begging for food, shelter, water, healthcare, clothing, anything, because they, they want to live. And it's the old saying that, you know, if you're, if you're a drowning man and you're 10 feet under water, you're not ready, you're not interested in a discussion on constitutional liberties. You don't want to talk about your freedom of speech or anything like that. You've got one thing in mind, and that's to get to the surface so you can breathe and live. That's why they want people underwater. They want people in such fear for their lives that they have no interest in anything else except survival. That's what it's all about. No, absolutely. And, that's, and it's, it's, I guess it's kind of a, a, something like the order out of chaos or whatever, that, that, that they, they thrive on this kind of chaos. But what we're seeing now is just, and again, so we're having to live through it. And it's, it, it's, it's, it's surrealistic to me because I, I envision these this kind of scenario and you have so many people i don't know if you're a religious man or not but so many of my friends are, are people that have interpreted the bible and been reading the bible for a long time and they see what's happening now in those terms that we're coming into the end times do you think that we are uh heading into the end times okay that's a tough question because it's hard for me to answer honestly and objectively for what my view is without running the risk of maybe alienating somebody who has a different view. Mm -hmm. So that's, I try to avoid that, but that's a fair question. And um, I guess my honest answer is that we're always ending, we're always entering into the end times. No matter what point in history you you look at it, it's, we're entering into it. This, this has to end some point. And maybe it's a million years from now, maybe it's um, 10 years from now, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's today, we don't know. but. We're all going to, we're all entering in our end times. I'm, I'm in my end times for sure. It may not be your same end times. So I don't know why people get hung up on that. We're all facing end times, but yeah. the idea that everybody's doing it at once is pretty dramatic. And so that yeah. becomes the center of focus. Uh, to me, it makes little difference whether we end all together or at one at a time, we're going to end and we better get our lives in order uh, so that whatever right. lies beyond that point, it's um, it's the way it should be. Um, yeah, I, well, I agree with you, and I think I. But I, I think I wonder what you you think when again I know what I think, but I again someone who's been around you you've been doing this basically since 1960, uh, <clears throat> but before the JFK assassination uh, even happened. Uh, when you look at the, I think this is what we're seeing is a culmination now of decades of going down the wrong path and the wrong side winning and the lackadaisical, apathetic attitude on the part of some good people 
people. When you look at these people that we're represented by, I mean, this is really, I don't know if you're a, if you were knowledgeable about comic books or whatever, but it's just like a, a, a row of Batman villains. I mean, this guy, Sam, the guy, if you saw the guy, the uh, transvestite, that's, or tra I don't know what the hell he is, but he's high ranking official. And he was just, uh, I don't know if he's going to be prosecuted for stealing a woman's purse in an airport. You have the guy, Rachel Levine. You have the, the Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. I mean, what do you think of these they're laughable people. I mean, there's there's no way they could rise to this level of prominence without tremendous corruption. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? Well, I don't think you're wrong. I think these people though are just are, are little crumbs in the pie. I mean, they're there to just to destroy our culture, to to change the new normal concept. They're just for people to say, "Oh my gosh, I guess I'm in the minority." Uh, actually, these these strange. Um, uh, things that you're talking about, I, in my view, are still very much in the minority. And, um, but that's all we see on television and in the news media. So it, we get the impression that it's everywhere and uh, so forth. But I, the people at the top are not like that. They're worse. <laughs> they're not, they're not comic book <laughs> characters. Uh, they're, yeah, they yeah, wear yeah. striped suits. They, they sit in Congress and on the Supreme Court. And some of them have high-ranking positions in government and even in churches. You know, it's it's that it's that bad. It's worse than what you just described. Those other people are just like uh, comic book characters. And yes, they're, yes, they're, the, those yeah. are the ones that we see. But so, yeah. what do you, what do, what do you tell people? Like, and I I tell people this point. I have faith, and I think at this point that's about all we can count on because uh, we we just had an election, and if anybody had any doubts that uh, that that these things are being counted honestly. I think you can throw, I mean, we, we're, first you have the midterms historically, the party in power loses seats. Uh, you've got an unprecedented economic situation all over. There's nothing about this in, this in this country that's working right. The economy, the only part that was working was real estate. Now that's falling because interest rates and everything. Uh, what do you tell people? Because you can't vote yourselves out of this, right? I mean, is, is there a way for somebody to, I mean, what do you, if anybody asks you about this, like what, I mean, is there anything beyond faith what you can do? I don't think there's a political answer at this point. Do you? No, I don't believe there's a political answer in the stick, in the sense of the word of partisan politics. And I don't think that faith is the answer either. I have to say that because if you have, if faith is the answer, that means you do nothing. And uh, you, you, you yes, just hope yes. that, uh, Fate will uh, be beneficial, which means it probably won't be. I think we have to we have to decide that whatever. Okay, here we go. This is not religious, but this is part of my belief system anyway. It's not religious in terms of of uh, you know particular religion or theology, but I believe that we're here for a purpose. All of this. I don't know what the purpose is, but I sense that subconsciously I respond to it as part of my instinct. For example, when I when my what I call my um, crusader gene started to vibrate back in 1960, 1961, what I really meant was is that something deep inside me uh, was aroused, and I had an instinct, a uh, feeling that I had to do something. Now that doesn't make sense if we were just if we're just uh, selfish human beings and we just you know survival of the fittest. Well, then it's survival of the fittest we don't have to do anything except be the fittest or you know that kind of thing but most people i think have this this deep feeling that they want to do something noble 
And there's, a, there's a, this question of what is just, what is right, what is noble, what, what are we here for? These are the questions that constantly people talk about, especially as they get older and they, they kind of, they know that the, the end of the track is probably coming into view somewhere. And they want to know, well, how did I do on this train trip? Did I do, was it worth the trip? Did I do anything constructive or did I just consume uh, resources? Am I just a useless eater? Did I leave a legacy? And all these things happen as you get older. And I think it's part of our, of our instinct. And I think that's how we know why we're here and what we're supposed to do is we should follow our instincts. Our instincts will drive us in that direction. Now that's my, my belief. It works for me. And all I know is that everything I'm doing is, is because I'm supposed to do it. So what am I supposed to do? I guess I'm supposed to try and convince people that we not only have to recognize what the problem is, but we have to get organized. We have to get together. And when that, that happens, it takes more than just coming together and saying, are you with me or not? You've got to ask a few questions. And the first question is, well, what are we going to do when we win? Nobody ever asks that question. So consequently, mm -hmm. so consequently, history is, shows us that we go from one tyranny to the next. Uh, you know, when it gets so bad, the public rises up and a great cost and treasure and blood, they overthrow the tyrant and they bring in the new man on the white horse. Oh, he's a good man, isn't he? Except five years later, he's as bad or worse than the one they just fought to overcome. History is replete with these cycles of replacing one tyranny after another because all people seem to be interested in is getting rid of the bad guy. They don't think about the system. The system will create bad guys out of good guys if it's the wrong system. That's what's happening in our system. We put good people into government and they come out the other side of the meat grinder as, as hamburger because it's a, it's a meat grinder. We have to discover what is the system that will not do that. What is the system that will prevent that from happening? And then we have to get united behind that principle and fight like hell. That's why I think I'm here. And if anybody is interested, in, we don't have time to go into all of the things I just said here. But if anybody is interested in what our view is on what is that, what is that concept that prevents the, the meat grinder? What is that concept that everybody can get united behind and literally overcome the tyranny that we now have without danger of replacing it with a new one? I would invite them to come to, we have a couple of websites that deal with that. Uh, freedomforceinternational.org is a think tank. We talk about that sort of thing a lot. And then we have two activist organizations and you can find those at redpillexpo.org and redpilluniversity.org. Between those three, you get a pretty good idea of this bigger issue of why I think we are here. Well, it's great. And I know you're doing a lot with Red Pill. And it's amazing that you're you're still so active doing all this. But uh, do you, a lot of the people that I talk to, they feel uh, that we need to go back to, you talked about the system. Do you feel that the constitutional system, if it was hadn't been corrupted for a long time, if you had the three separate and equal branches of the governments, if we actually followed the Bill, the Bill of Rights did actually protect us, uh, would would you say that 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 is the right system? Do you feel that it's because we haven't, you know, obviously it's been corrupted for judicial review from the beginning, and uh, imperial presidencies and so forth? Do you think they could, or do we need to go back to the Articles of Confederation? Well, I think the constitutional system, as you call it, 
was a, a stroke of genius. Yeah. Nothing like that had ever happened before in history. And uh, it was the turning point, I believe, for civilization. But it wasn't perfect. It was a beta model. And considering that it was a beta model, I think it was amazingly good. But, you know, if you go back and look at those debates during the Constitutional Convention and beyond, there was a lot of compromise that had to be made to unite those 13 countries. We call them colonies, but they were countries. They were nations of their own. We had to unite them and get them to agree to join. And to get all of them to do it, some of them had specialties, special interests that the other ones didn't like. And, of course, there was that issue of slavery existed. And some of the... Uh, the nations or the colonies wanted to get rid of that completely at that point, but the others wouldn't go along with it. So they couldn't have formed the union if they insisted on it. So compromises were made, unfortunately, but it was necessary. And it was a beta model. I want to go back to that. And considering that, it, it was an amazingly successful thing, but it wasn't perfect. So now, now with the passage of time, another 200 years, we've seen where the flaws were. Does that mean we scrap the whole thing or do we build upon it? And say now, for example, you know, the, the um, what do they call it? The um, general welfare clause of the Constitution. What a piece of garbage that is. Uh, what is the general welfare? I mean, some demagogue can say the general welfare right. is to take your COVID shot. You know, it's a piece of garbage. Why do we revere it? Well, we, we can revere the Constitution and the concept, the principle, the system, as you say, but there are pieces of it that need to be removed or improved or replaced. And that's our job is to work that out. Now, the old saying is you, the, the colonists and the, the founding fathers, let's just call them that, were very clear. They said, do not approach the Constitution. Uh, you, you should approach it as a jewel. Be very jealous of it. Be suspicious that somebody's going to steal it. Somebody's going to destroy it. They didn't want anybody messing around with the Constitution. And I feel that way, too. But that does not mean that it can't be and shouldn't be, must be perfected. And I think that's one of the reasons we're having this crisis right now, is so that these flaws will come in, into view. And now you and I and others like us will have an opportunity to, to improve and make the necessary improvements on it and make the jewel shine even better than it did before. I think it's a great opportunity and I feel grateful that we live in this period of crisis because without it, people would be, they'd sleep through the whole thing and nothing would happen. It would just gradually deteriorate. But now people are alarmed, they're concerned, they're filled with determination and they want to do something about it. And now is the time, now is the time to make those changes. Uh, Sam's, bo Sam's body tree uh, wants to know, uh, he's curious about your HIV research in the 1980s. Well, my HIV research was practically zero. I read a lot of the research done by others. And um, so I'm informed a lot. But the, the, my own personal independent research was uh, limited to some study of uh, data. And perhaps it was, it's very revealing. It was very revealing to me. It, it put the whole thing into focus. I might share it with you because others might find it interesting. Mm -hmm. When HIV struck, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker like everybody else. Oh, HIV is here. A terrible virus going to wipe out the world. And um, we found out that, well, it, it wasn't spread 
spreading through America like they told us it was going to. It was pretty much limited to the to the homosexual community in San Francisco and other major cities. And it became pretty clear that it was related to drug intake, uh, recreational drugs, mostly, although not entirely, could be prescription drugs, drugs that destroyed the immune system. But that point was sort of just bubbling under the surface. We all bought into it. We said, well, whatever this thing is, it's dangerous. It's going to, uh, we have to do something about it. And, oh, let's hope they get a vaccine. Even then, you've got to have a vaccine to fix it, you know. We were hopeful yeah. for that vaccine. And then Americans didn't die in great numbers. Then the, the, our, the news turned to the idea that Africa was falling apart. All these poor Africans everywhere are dying by the millions. And if this keeps up, there will be no Africans left. Uh, my heart and everybody's heart was bleeding for all these people. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then that sort of disappeared from the news. All the people in Africa didn't die. But we kept getting these reports of all these huge deaths coming from HIV in Africa. And yet the population was still there. Okay, fast forward now to my end of this. I yeah. think it was two years later, yeah. thereabouts. For some reason, I came across some data that was published, I think, by the World Health Organization. Okay, these are people that I don't have much respect for today. Anyway, they were producing data. And it was, the data showed all the death uh, statistics for all the countries in, in Africa during this uh, HIV uh, pandemic. And I'm looking through the list and I see the death numbers for, you know, all these different things and malnutrition, homicide, um, um, you name it, uh, malaria and so forth. And um, it came to HIV and here's this huge spike. It goes way through the ceiling. I thought, aha, there it is. They told us there were all these millions and millions of deaths. I saw the spike and then I was ready to pack it all away. But I went to the end of this whole list and there was a number down there. It said total deaths from all causes. Okay. That's, who cares about that? I was looking at the spike, but I happened to notice that the total deaths for all causes was almost exactly the same as the previous year. And that was almost exactly the same as the previous year to that. And that there had been no serious alteration in total deaths whatsoever. And then I looked at some of these other deaths, deaths from malnutrition, that was practically gone. The flu was all gone. And it became immediately clear that somebody had been messing with the statistics. And they simply yes. took deaths from a lot of other causes and relabeled them as HIV. And if that yes. was the moment that, the, that I took the red pill on this whole pandemic thing. And I see now that it never changed. The strategy is still going on exactly the same. So that's yes. the extent of my research on this. Okay. Well, I guess, but, but do, you, do you find it interesting? And you're, what you described exactly, obviously, is even more so with this because uh, they, they've blown this into a much greater crisis than uh, HIV AIDS was. But the man at the center of uh, that in the 1980s was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Again, he was the one that was pushing this uh, <clears throat> uh uh, AV, oh, what the hell was the name of the day? AV, what the hell? I'm forgetting the a name of the AZT. AZT, yeah. AZT, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, he was pushing this deadly thing. And once they stopped giving it to patients, AIDS disappeared, didn't it? I mean, it wasn't, anything, wasn't exactly the same thing that we see going on now? Well, it's, it, yeah, it's very similar because now that you look back at it in retrospect, they're still telling us that AIDS is a deadly disease, by the way. They haven't abandoned that. But the word itself explains it. Autoimmune deficiency 
syndrome, right? A syndrome. It's not a disease. It's a syndrome of diseases yeah. or, or uh, symptoms. And so what, what it really is, is all the old causes of death that we've had forever, simply relabeled as AIDS. That's it. I mean, a school child can understand that. The trouble with older people is they don't believe that the, the people at the high end of our government and the health services could be that crooked. That's the only, the only reason they get by with oh, it. Yes. The lie is so big that nobody can believe that it is a lie. Well, it's amazing that, that they still, old, old people especially, and I understand old people are more dependent upon the medical uh, the healthcare system because they they you know they tend to get more problems. But they, it's unbelievable how trusting they are in the medical. You know, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but before COVID hit, the uh, the medical system itself, the industry itself, was the third leading cause of death. They admit in America. I contend they're probably number one now because who knows how many of their vaccines have killed and hospitals have killed. What, especially at your age? I mean, you look. Uh, how do you feel about what I call the medical industrial complex in this country? Well, I feel it's a, a medical industrial complex for sure. That's how I feel about it. It's got its own agenda and the primary agenda is not to, to improve health. Um, in fact, I think the whole thing could be understood by watching a, a video I saw a few years ago of a young lady who was a sales rep for one of the big, big pharmaceutical companies. And she resigned from her position and gave a, a press conference. And in that press conference, this is what she said. She said, I, I started into the business thinking I was helping people. I thought I was working for a company that um, was trying to get rid of dreaded diseases and improve people's health. And then gradually over time, I discovered that that was not the business model at all. The business model was not to cure any diseases or ailments, because if you did that, you lose your customer, you lose your income, your cash flow. The business model, she said, for all of these companies is to keep people sick, keep the condition present, but make them well enough that they can go to work, but they need treatment for the rest of their lives in order to keep from dying. The business model is to treat, not to cure, it's because it's, it produces more money. And she said, I couldn't do that in conscience anymore. Once I heard that talk, it all snapped into place. I said, of course, that's exactly what they do. And look, when you get to people to people my age and you say, what are your meds? And they got a whole laundry list full of meds. <laughs> yeah. It takes seven yes. or eight or nine or 10 or 12 different things every week. And that's, you know, that runs into thousands and thousands of dollars a week yeah. or a month for these old folks. And they're, they don't get better. They just grind no. away. They're still hobbling along, but they're producing income for the pharmaceutical industry. Now, when I go into a, a doctor's office or someplace where they have a dentist and they ask me, what are your meds? I say, well, I don't, I don't have any. What do you mean you don't have? No, I mean your meds. What, what meds are you on? I don't have. No, you're not, you're not listening to me, Mr. Griffin. What medication do you take? You're not listening to me. I yeah. don't take any. And, uh, so anyway, that's, that's the world that we live in. So that's my attitude. It's a, it's a business model, and um, it's a profitable business model. I, pharmaceutical industry, I guess, is number two, uh, or maybe number one. The other one would be um, armaments and uh, weapons of war. It's hard to say which one is the most profitable. One kills, the other one keeps you alive. So people will spend any amount of money to kill you, their enemies, and, and the rest of it they'll spend to stay alive. 
So the enemy has gotten hold of both of those industries. Well, do you, do you think, I mean, I, I comment a lot on, uh, on the, I, mean, I worked for the medical industrial complex for a long time in IT, but I, I saw the sausage being made and uh, I too take no meds and, you know, I'm, I'm a lot younger than you, but I'm still almost nobody my age is, you know, they always say, what, what do you mean? You don't take any meds. I know. Yeah. Sorry, I just don't. Uh, but uh, I don't, I don't think I've seen, seen what it does to people. And uh, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, they cause more harm than good. And uh, what do you, what do you say to, do you think that if you look around you, you, you know, again, you're, you've been around for a while. So, uh, we look at the old pictures, and I'm old enough to remember a time, you know, the 70s and even 80s, where you looked around and you saw a crowd, you know, you went to the mall on the weekend and you went, you know, you went girl watching, you know, you went to the beach stuff. And, and uh, what do you think of the crowds now? If you go out in a crowd, do you see as I do that America has just gotten uglier physically? I mean, they just they look like a defeated people and they're out of shape. Uh, they're, you know, way, 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 way too much. All over. I mean, what, what are your impressions of the way America looks now as opposed to what it looked like when you were a young man? Well, I think you well described it, Don. Um, I don't remember as, as a young person seeing so many people that I thought were um, either grotesque or on the verge of being grotesque because of overweight or lack of being in good shape or having a, a dull expression on their face or the way they walk or stand, uh, they're, you know, they stand upright or are they all bent over? Do they, do they look you in the eye or do they look at the ground? All these things that go into body language. I don't remember seeing so many grotesque uh, things when I was young, but I really don't know. Maybe I just wasn't looking, but I sure know it's there now. No, it isn't. I, I, to, to my, I mean, I hear from, you know, I have lots of, uh, <clears throat> young guys, especially that, uh, you know, that uh, follow me and everything. And I, you know, they talk about the dating scene and, you know, my, my sympathies are to them because it just, it just, it doesn't look the same out there. And um, not to mention the attitudes and everything. So America has changed, but I mean, I think you can, and, and when we see the way some of the, these characters, we talk about the way they look and everything, this is, I mean, when you, when you envisioned, when you were writing Creature from Jekyll Island, when you were working with the John Burt Society, just, you know, do, we're talking about the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, Trilateral Commission, and we learn about the Bilderbergers, Bohemian Grove. We know all these things are going on. We know that there's some, they're acting like conspirators, whatever they are. Did did you envision in your mind what, what would it look like when they decided to come out from the shadows? I mean, are they coming out from the shadows now? Are they just kind of saying, yeah, we're here? This is, you know, you guys were right. We're not going to tell you you were right. But, you know, I mean, because that's, to me, they seem like they're just doing whatever they want at this point. Well, actually, uh, this is kind of funny because my honest answer to your question is that I used to think a lot about what it would look like when they came out, mm -hmm. but I, I was wrong as to what they would look like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, but remember, I started back in 1960, and my education began at that time. It continues today, by the way. So my, my awareness really was improved gradually over that whole uh, period of time. And when I began, I, I was convinced that our, our basically our only real problem was communism. Communism was taking over the world, over there, all these other countries. And yeah, there was a little a silly communist party in the US, but they would never amount to anything, especially if we got on the job and, and exposed them. And But I was always worried about communism coming to America you know, with the hammer and sickle. Well, now, 
<laughs> beginning to shift back again a little bit more lately to that sort of thing now because we see the hammer and sickle a lot on our streets more than we did 10 years ago. But still, that's not the, I don't see it that way anymore. What I didn't realize is that communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, all these things are basically the same ideology. And people can move from one to the other and remain very comfortable there. The only difference would be uh, to what leader are you loyal or what country are you loyal? Because it's the only reason they fight against each other is the only reason Nazi Germany and communist Russia fought against each other was not over what they believed because they believed the same thing. They fought over dominance. Who was going to control? Who was going to who was going to own the real estate, real estate? Who was going to own the people? And uh, that's been true ever since then. But in the beginning, I didn't see that. I thought it was communism versus us. Well, communism, communists were on the left and we're on the opposite. So that means I had to be on the right. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, you know, if, if these are opposites, which they are not, but I thought they were at the time because they fought each other in World War II, right? They hated each other. They killed each other. So you had to be on one side or the other. It gave me no choice. I had to be on one side or the other. Which one did I want? Well, I didn't want to be a Nazi or a fascist, but I did want to be opposite to communism. So I identified myself as a right winger. And some people today still do that. They don't realize that. Hey, wait a minute. You haven't, you haven't clarified a thing yet. Because right wingers yeah. can be communists. They can be, well, not communists. They can be Nazis. They can be fascists. They can be anything they want to be because the word really has no hard definition to it. So in the middle of all this learning, I realized that there was a better model. There was a better definition to define the differences in ideology. It was the difference between collectivism on the one hand and individualism on the other. Now we can deal with it. So now I say I'm an individualist. And all of my enemies are collectivists. I don't care what flag they wave. They all want to reduce humankind to a collective bowl of mashed potatoes so that nobody has any rights, individual rights. They have to do whatever the group uh, demands of them. And those who run the group are the absolute masters because they speak for the people, all that stuff. That's the enemy. And all of the forces that we're fighting today, even though they fly the American flag, some of them believe in that. That's our enemy. And it's no longer a national issue or uh, an ism issue unless it's, you know, collectivism and individualism. So now I've come full force. And, um, and the answer to the question is that no, back in the beginning, I envisioned that we would have a, a problem with um, Bolshevik type communists on our streets. But we're beginning to see a little bit of that because we see, you know, um, some of the more. Uh, the more violent groups on the streets really are in that category, but they're, they're minor. That's, they're not really the, the masses. And I don't think they ever will be here in this country. But what we do have to worry about are people who, who are waving the American flag, but speaking the same rhetoric as the communists and the fascists and the Nazis. They believe the same thing and they pretend to be loyal Americans. They pretend to be Republicans, we call them rhinos, for example. Yes. All they're false leaders, and they're leading us to the same position, the same end that we would have been led to had my original vision been correct with we had Bolshevik-type communists on the street. The end product is the same. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot, a lot of comments in here. People are really responding uh, to what you're saying. But, you know, I, I would look at it like, uh, 
the essence, I think, of the founders uh, was that they, they created a system of really limited government. The idea was to, when you split up power like that, and again, that's why a lot of people that I talk to, they, they want to go back to the Articles of Confederation. They think they gave them too much constitution. But um, they were following, you know, one of my favorite populists is uh, Lord Atkin, who said power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So this, isn't this what we're seeing what's happening now when you give leaders, the kind of power we over the years, starting with Lincoln and going to Woodrow Wilson and FDR, that they just usurped power and and that they all cite each other's precedents. Now look what you have. You have political prisoners in Washington, D.C. denied all due process. You have people getting canceled uh, for saying things. The Bill of Rights is gone. They don't even talk about it. They talk about hate speech. What Hate's a human emotion, and nobody fights that. Nobody says, what do you mean hate speech? What? Tell me, what do you think there's any difference between hate speech and thought crime? I don't think so. Well, no, it's all, it's all nebulous. It's just a handle. It's, a, it's an emotionally loaded phrase that they can use as a weapon against you because um, if you're hateful, then who could support you? You know, that kind of thing. It's a, it's a word game, and they're masters at it. They know how to use vocabulary and phrases, what do they call it? Uh, um, virtue signaling, you know? They're very virtue good at that. Virtue sig- signaling. <laughs> Constantly. And, and the, this entire, this identity politics is so insidious. And I think part of the problem was this stupid two-party system we had. I admit probably <clears throat> were... Uh, at least interested in, in third-party politics for a long time. I know I was. And uh, there is no, I mean, they're going to talk about it now because of Trump. Trump divided the country so much. But how do you, why do you think millions of people still remain loyal to the Republicans after they saw the midterm elections and after they'll undoubtedly have the same stupid leadership with Mitch McConnell and this guy McCarthy probably? How many times do they have to get fooled? I mean, it just, I mean, is, you know, at what point do they wake up and say, okay, this is not the answer? You know, we have to come up with a real alternative here. I guess I'm having trouble with the word they. Who is they? They, they are us. And yes. in a sense, there's some of us that are uh, a little more awake than others. But for yeah. example, they, Hmm. Uh, boy, I'm really going to get people mad at me now. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> most people who cherish liberty like we do and want to do something about it still do not understand that our system has too much democracy in it because people still think that if you win the election, well, you're the winner. You can do whatever you want. Winner takes all. They don't really get the idea that there are constitutional limitations on what you can do, even if you win the election. But people today in America who cherish liberty have never put these two facts together, that you cannot have a democracy and where winner takes all and still have protected rights. Because all you need is a a demagogue and a, a bunch of emotional people voting for the demagogue. And they say, well, we're going to support a law that uh, prevents people from from even going to church on Sunday or from having more than $10,000 in the bank or in a savings account or making more than 
$32,500 a year or, or, or whatever. In other words, if we think that winning the election is the end game and the winner takes all, there's nothing, there's nothing can be done no matter how much we get tired of, of having this, the elections not produce any difference because they never will as long as we have that mindset. So the we includes a lot of people who really don't like what you just described, but don't realize that they themselves are part of it because that's what they demand indirectly. So how do, I, how do we resolve that? I think the only resolution is to do what we're trying to do now, which is to make more and more and more people think about these, these issues as issues, not as political parties, not as left versus right, or you know, communists versus Nazis, or, or anything like that. Um, and we have to stop looking for a man on the white horse, because our opponent will put that man in front of us. It'll be their man, and we won't recognize it. Now, could it be somebody like Donald Trump? Heavens, to even you can't even raise that question, because <laughs> if it were, nobody would believe it. And um, so, because the the media, you asked the question, or somebody asked the question. How come people continue to support these um, these false leaders? You didn't say false leaders, but people who talk a lot but don't do very much. Sure. Let's just call them the, the rhinos. Sure. They vote the same as the extreme yeah. left-wing Democrats, but they're in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Why are they in the Republican Party? Obviously, they're there to screw up the Republican Party, to make sure that there's no difference between the Republican and the Democrat Party, except rhetoric. Now, it... Would anybody look at the Republican Party and the Democrat Party and say there's a substantial difference between what they do, not what they say, what they do? Did they both support wars? Yes. Did they both support taking away your liberties and in response to solving some great crisis? Yes. Did they both support turning American sovereignty over to international um, uh, institutions and the UN? Yes. Did they both support the Federal Reserve control over the money system? Yes. Can you think of any major, really major issue germane to the survival of our nation that they don't mutually support? And no, you cannot. They're the same party. So when you talk about the third party, I mean, where's yeah. the third party? We've got a, we got a one-party system now that, per, that pretends to be a two-party system. Now, how many people are willing to say no? Yes. Very many. Not very many. They'll, they'll say, get this guy Griffin out of here. He's, he's a rabble rouser. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Because they like their man in the particular party. Anyway, yeah, I guess what I'm saying, let me well, I, this, we need a lot of education to, to solve these problems first. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I think we talked about, we might obviously talked about Trump last time, but I think a lot of good and bad came out of Trump. Uh, Trump's just presence, uh, I think, brought a lot of the roaches out in the light. You know, people started seeing the system for what it was. And uh, he, he just the fake news thing is great, although everybody now just calls what they don't like fake news. But at least people realize there is fake news. And they realize how bad the media is. Uh, but the fact that millions, I, I had on my show one of the uh, the mother of uh, the girl who, uh, who was killed, Ashley Babbitt. Uh, at, on January 6th, I had her mother on my show a while back, and she still loves Trump. Her daughter was killed, and she's still loyal to him. Uh, there's millions and millions of people where they're never going to lose the faith on this guy. And I, what, what is your, especially now with Trump, and, and you can see how they're, uh, 
when you said they don't, they only allow certain things. Uh, he met with this guy, Nick Fuentes and Kanye West now, and he's the entire Republican party is condemning him. I, so I, uh, they, I, I don't sure what they want, but they're, the rhinos are in charge there. There's no question. They don't even want a Trump type opposition. What, what is your feeling about Trump at this point? And DeSantis, do you see any good in any of them? Well, any good, of course, I think there's good in all of them unless they're totally evil and they're committed to uh, being a deceitful, false leader. I'm not sure about that, but I think I, I think there are other ways to control people like, uh, like Biden and Trump, and that's through blackmail and, and um, money. I mean, when you take a look at Mr. Trump's financial empire, uh, I've seen what I consider to be overwhelmingly convincing evidence that he would have been bankrupt by now had he not accepted a financial bailout from the Rothschilds. And uh, people don't talk about that. Um, they, you know, they don't understand that. They don't understand that uh, when, um, when Trump was running for president in the first election and somebody asked him about Mr. Soros, who Mr. Trump and Mr. Soros are great buddies. They've been hanging out together for quite a bit. They, they have social contacts. And um, Soros is a serious, serious problem. He's really serious. And uh, he represents the Rothschild financial uh, source resources as well. I don't know how much of it is his and how much is Rothschild, not important. But with the tremendous amount of money that, that, um, that you know, that he, that he spends, uh, on um, on revolutionary, counter-revolutionary, and subversive activities, he's a major player. So during the election campaign, somebody asked him, asked Trump, "Well, what if you're elected? What would you do about Mr. Soros?" And so help me God, I, I saw it myself on on the television. In fact, I think I saved it in my file. He said, "Oh, poor Mr. Soros. He's got enough problems as it is. I leave him alone." And he said, "Next question, please." So, you know, these things don't yeah. get into the news. Um, yeah. yeah, poor Mr. Soros, sure. And then uh, Mr. Trump says, well, we're going to put this, this vaccine on fast track. We're not going to require that it be tested or anything. And he, he, he buys hook, line, and sinker, whatever Fauci tells him. Why, why, does, why does that happen? And what, come, what makes Mr. Trump a, a good... Uh, <clears throat> A, a good candidate for being president anyway. What's his background? Well, when you look at his background, okay, it's not very good. I mean, if you get past his book that he wrote and actually look at some news stories of what he's done and um, and his background and, and his, his um, how shall I say this without getting even deeper into caca, um, hmm. his, his affinity for for pretty young girls that's been pretty well known, but forgotten. Sure. I mean, his involvement with the Miss America contest, his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein and yeah. Gazelle, what's her name? I mean, he's deep in all of that stuff, folks. Mm -hmm. And now how difficult would it be to blackmail a person like that? Heck, a 12 year old could do it. And um, so can you control a person with a couple of hundred million dollars to bail you out of your financial troubles and a little bit of blackmail thrown in and maybe a little threatening um, notice that if you don't do this, you're dead in a doornail, you know? 
Well, you answer that question. I think this stuff goes on all along. But the problem is nobody wants to think that it might go on in terms of somebody that they like. They think, well, yeah, but Mr. Trump or Mr. Biden, they would never do that because I like them and I, I think they're sincere. They're good people. Right. No, right. That, so we're dealing with perceptions. And when you realize that all of our perceptions and yours and mine included are greatly clouded by the 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 media that we're subjected to, it's pretty hard to know sometimes what is truth and what is fantasy. Absolutely. Well, you, you have lots of fans out there. Tony Truth RX uh, it says Griffin was a staple in my awakening process. He is the greatest of all time, of all greatest of all times. Better call the medics for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Raybo says the same thing. Goat, greatest of all time. That's what they say about Tom Brady. So you get lots of people here and uh, that, uh, that think that. But um, you're right. But it, it just seems like people, unfortunately, they want to trust in personalities. And politics has always been so revolves so much around personalities. And uh, is it even if Trump had been sincere? I, I think the problems in this country are way beyond what any one person can do. I don't think he was sincere, but uh, there's, but I think he, he's opened up the process, but I think at this point he's got the hopes up of again, 70, 80 million, however many people voted for him and, and probably at least 50 million remain loyal to him in some way or another. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a chunk of the population. And they're, they were already suspicious of elections. They're suspicious of the midterms and they should be. Uh, so at this point, how do you, without, finally coming out of the shadows for good. I kind of talked about that before without pulling the mask, no pun intended, but to finally reveal who they are and just say, okay, we're not going to pretend, uh, you know, we're nice and Hey, you guys. And Hey, with our little fluffy info, uh, uh, you know, uh, news shows, we're going to come right out and show you we're like the Chinese, you know, we're going to crush down on like tyranny because that's what they want to do. Obviously. Do you think they'll do that? Cause how long can they keep the charade up when you have, again, at least 50 million people thought, 80 million people, I think, at least in this country, are awake to some degree. They knew something was wrong. And they so they went against it. They believed in Trump or whatever. But how do you continue to run this, this what is essentially a, a, a dog and pony show when that many of the people know it's a dog and pony show? Well, people can know it's a dog and pony show without realizing that their dog is a pony. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just made that up. Yeah. It's not too good, but you that's, get that's a good one. That's good. <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, if you like a person and you have faith in them, you don't think they're a dog or a pony. You think they're the real thing. And uh, anybody suggesting that your your favorite uh, person is not what you think it is, it's it's kind of insulting to you, and you, you get emotional about it. It's like. Um, like a religious um, discussion, um, you know, people of two different religious persuasions get to talking about it. The first thing I you know, their differences in their beliefs are so strong that they begin to um, be very vitriolic with each other and um, they don't like each other and it becomes even you know, very, very violent sometimes. There are wars fought over religious differences, which is incredible to me to think about. But yeah, it's because there, the conflict is that over some belief system or worldview that is extremely deep 
and very strong. And without that, our whole sense of who we are and why we're here is challenged. So we have this subconscious desire to, to defend it, defend it, defend it all the way, you know, and to yield and say, gosh, I was wrong. It takes an unusual person to do that. Very difficult. Sure. I think that's probably. Bodhi, Sam, Sam's uh, body tree uh, asks, uh, can you, can you, what, what is your record your voting record. They want to know, like, uh, the force of your long life. Uh, what what candidates you supported? I mean, who who did, who did you? Maybe you you don't think they were good now, but who who? What was your voting record like? Did you vote straight Republican no. at some point, or what? Or third party? There was a time when I did, um, because I thought not. I didn't vote Republican because they were Republican, but because at that time I thought the fact that they were Republican meant something. I thought it meant that they were what we used to call conservative, which has no real meaning to it, but at yeah. least it, we have a flavor of conservative versus liberal and that kind of thing. And, and I didn't like the liberal uh, ideology because it was too close to communist and fascist stuff. I didn't realize that not only too close to it, but it was it. Anyway, so I thought, you know, the old idea, you vote for the lesser of two evils. I fell for that for quite a while. And then I got to the point where, wait a minute, if you vote for the lesser of two evils and they control both of the evils, <laughs> you've had it. They've got you. you. They give you a choice of what do you what do you want to be, a communist or a Nazi? You see, if you think that the only alternative is left mm -hmm. versus right, then you have to. You, well, I, I don't I hate communism. So I guess that makes me a Nazi or a fascist or a right winger anyway. So this is the game that they play. And in my personal view, I think if the the people that are so obnoxious, the, the ones that are designed to scare everybody, the antifascista, uh, the um, the Black Lives Matter groups, the people that burn buildings down and and beat up others and run over others, the violent ones, they're scary. They're, they're, their role is to be very, very scary so that um, we got to do something about them. And uh, so... If anybody in that extreme scary groups and those groups start to um, uh, condemn somebody, what are we to think? We think, oh, the person that these extreme groups are condemning must be good. We, we should support him. It's, it's the old left versus right again. Mm -hmm. If we don't like these people, well, then we'll have to support the other people that these people hate. And the more they express their hatred, against somebody or some group, the more we feel subconsciously, well, they must be good. So I guess, boy, if they, they hate him that much, boy, he's my man, you know? This is the game, folks. This is the game. Donald Trump doesn't win. Well, that was folks. Trump. Trump had all the right enemies. He doesn't. Yeah. That's always, that was right always enemies. the best thing about it. His enemies a, his that right produce his support. <laughs> it's not him. It's his enemies yeah. that produce his yeah. support. That's my yeah. point. And still has great enemies. W William Hale, who is watching us from Australia, says the creature from Jekyll Island was stunning when I first read it. Graves uh, wants said, has uh, has Mr. Griffin ever met a U.S. president like Kennedy or anything? No, no, I never have. No, no, he's never read, but. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and I love the title, "The Creature from Jekyll Island." We talked about that last time. That, that I think that probably has a lot to do with maybe how it got was successful. 
very catchy title. Yeah. You know, it gives kind of the 1950s, yeah. you know, sci-fi film, you know, the creature from Jekyll Island. It gives it a, a horror aspect, which it is. <laughs> yeah. it, it was a creature. But I, I and I said, you must feel, again, you've, you've come to the point in your life where now you're looking and you probably, I don't know if you foresaw anything like digitalized currency, but did, did you ever think that they could come up with something where you might say, wait a minute, bring back the federal reserve. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I never did. Well, of course I never thought much about digital currencies until it exploded onto us. You know, I was way behind the curve on that one. Had no idea that it was coming. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I don't, I, it's, and that's what's, I think, shocking is that the, the narrative has changed so much. We were, we were, you know, so much for so long, and I'm sure you, especially from the kind of John Burt Society and everything, the concern always was one world government. They're going to set up a one world government, right? And that's what we talked about, a new world order. And that's what everybody's talking about. But this is, I mean, that may come out of that. But uh, what they're talking about doing here, if they can get control of the, of people's monies. The, and the only way I'm grounded in a lot of people that I talk to, they're talking about trying to form, uh, to go right back to the beginning and try to form very local societies and come up with a new medium of exchange. Do you think that's possible? I, I mean, I, I would, I would love to think we could do that, but something tells me they're not going to allow that. They're just going to come and say, no, you got to be plugged back into the grid here. Oh, they're not going to, they're not going to let you uh, escape control if they if they can't if they can't help it i mean if they can't help it they won't let it happen so if it happens it'll be because we either recapture control of the system which is what i'm hoping we do or somehow we figure some way to uh, to work around it and hide in the shadows or something which is only a temporary solution at best but you know the idea of um, the, the new world order and the one world government it may surprise you to know that I'm not opposed to a one world government. And I'll have to explain that, of course, very quickly. But my first okay. book that I mm -hmm. wrote was called The Fearful Master, A Second Look at the United Nations. So I got pretty deep into all of the ins and outs around that topic of world government. And, and uh, the, it suddenly dawned on me that uh, people were condemning the United Nations because it was a coming world government. And I had to stop and challenge my own beliefs and say, well, what's wrong with world government if it were the right kind of world government? Mm -hmm. And that was the question that nobody was asking. Government is, or, or the state is neither good nor bad, but what kind of system is it makes a big difference. If the world government or the world state was based on the principles that were embedded in the US Constitution, the protection of individual life and liberty and property, then it would be a very good thing. But it's not based on that. It's based on the model of collectivism, rule from the top down. And that's the part that is the problem. It's not the fact that it's worldwide. It's the problem of what it is. And um, so anyway, that's I just want to throw that out is because people don't think enough about the type of government or the type of state. And that's what we need to focus on is the, the ideology behind it. And if the world were all ruled by the right ideology, it would be a wonderful place in which to live. Sure. Well, you, what, do, what do you think? 
when you look around today, the world, what do you get any hope from anything as far as you say we have to try to take control of the system? We have to try to do something. We can't just continue to let the bully take our lunch money every day, which is what's happening, uh, you know, for decades, you know. Um, and there are we're the white hats. We don't. I, I don't think you know we have the QAnon nonsense and all that. What What do you when you look around? Where do you see any hope? Like you think, okay, maybe that's we have a chance there. Maybe that could work. Well, I see the hope coming from everywhere. It's sometimes people say we have to reach the youth. It's the youth that are going to solve this problem, and I kind of agree with that. And it's hard to it's hard to argue against it. But when I look at the numbers and the profile and the, uh, you know, the, the age groups and so forth, of the people that are reading my book and coming to our meetings and joining with our Red Pill University, Red Pill Expo and so forth, it's across the board. There are oodles of young people in there, but they're old people too. And I think it's important to realize that this is across the board and we designed it on purpose so that we could avoid all kinds of internal conflicts, except for one thing. The only, the only thing that we require agreement on is that individualism is superior to collectivism, and that if we could change the social and political environment in our community and in our world, our nation, to individualism as opposed to collectivism, most, if not all, of the problems that we worry about will go away because they cannot exist in a system of individualism. Now, how we do that exactly is not clear in anybody's mind. But first of all, we have to have numbers in order to do it. And I think we already have enough people out there who are aware of the value of individualism versus collectivism, although they may not have ever heard those words. The minute you describe it to them, they say, oh, of course, count me in. Um, so I think the people are already there. So all we have to do now, might now we get to the issue of what is encouraging. And that is, I see that people of all age groups, all nationalities, all cultures, all religions, all lifestyles, all economic status, coming together on that one unifying principle of liberty as a, uh, based on the principles of individualism. And so the hope comes from the fact that we can play a role in bringing these people together in a international coalition, which we are now building, it's underway. And it's all sheltered under the heading of Red Pill University and the campuses that we're building now, hopefully in every, every county in the United States and in similar political subdivisions in other countries around the world. And these uh, campuses will be small groups of people who will be very influential in local politics, in uh, local organization activities, social routines, the culture of the local group, selecting candidates for city hall, county board of supervisors, a board of education, a mayor, um, sheriff, all of these things. That's where my hope comes from because it, when we talk about taking control of the system, we don't mean like a revolution. We're talking about just moving in to positions that are now functioning in the uh, existing system. They have, most of them are up for grabs now and then. We have to be there and be in those positions ourselves now and that's how we'll bring it back. Do you, when you look around and you see all over the world, even China now, you're having massive protests. Look at Brazil. 
Uh, we saw in France, UK, everywhere. The only place you're not seeing people taking to the streets in great numbers is America. And the only thing that we had was January 6th. And we saw what happened there. Uh, they, came, they came down with a, you know, an authoritarianism, I think Red China would, would, would blush over. And we still have political prisoners in prison. You have, I, I read today they sent uh, this uh, trans, I don't even understand, but there's a transgender proud boy or something. I, it's ridiculous. You think they'd make that a poster child, but uh, she could get 50 years for a for sedition. This is insane. What uh, It seems to me it's ripe for Americans to be out in the streets. Do you think that we don't see it here. I mean, if they can do it in China, I mean, are, are, do you think that we will? It will get so bad eventually that the Americans that are so apathetic—they're watching, as you said, watching, uh, you know, their television and so forth—they're they're comfortable enough. I mean, say for instance, if we don't have heat this winter, which they've hinted at in the year, or if we have rolling power blackouts, what do you think? Food shortages—is there anything that would get the Americans to go out in the streets? Well, I think you just mentioned a couple of them there. Uh, Donna, th th those things do bring people into the streets, but there's another element here which we've been talking about that comes back into play, and that is that our our opponents know that these things are going to happen, and they're not going to just wait for them to happen um, generically, that people are going to be spontaneous. They're already organizing them themselves, and uh, they have leaders in place we don't know who they are yet, but when the time comes, there'll be people out there who will try to lead these movements in such a way that they will backfire, like uh, like January 6th. Um, I mean, those the things that happened uh, in Washington D.C. that were so horrendous were not from the from our people; they were from the uh, organized militant groups from the other side. They were there with the American flags and the pro-Trump flags and the stick, and they were the ones creating the violence. They're the ones that set it up so that it would provide an excuse for a lockdown. It was all orchestrated. Now, what you just talked about uh, is going to happen. The same thing will happen again. We have to not fall for it. We have to look for the the agent provocateurs who are out there trying to destroy property, injure people, and uh, all of that sort of thing and expose them. It's not going to be easy, but we can't do it staying at home. Yeah, and that's why, so talk a little more about the, what you're doing with the Red Pill University, and you're, you're saying you're seeing young people coming in there and everything. What what kind of projects or what 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 actions are you are you doing what, with Red Pill University? Well, Red Pill University and Red Pill Expo are sort of related to each other. We'll start with the Red Pill Expo. It's um, an event that takes place twice a year. And our last one was in Salt Lake City uh, last month. And the next one is coming up in June, uh, probably in um, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, although that hasn't been confirmed yet. And these events are, are big events, public events, and everybody's invited. The, the motto of the uh, meeting is because you know something is wrong. And it's designed for people just who have that thought in their mind. They know that something is fishy. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's some, some kind of, of smoke and mirrors going on here. And they want to know more. So they come, maybe a lot of them come as skeptics. In fact, I know they do. And, but they come to see. And uh, we do our best to provide the best information that's uh, available from speakers and presenters, teachers 
who in their own lives have taken the red pill and learned that the difference between reality and illusion in something that's very, very important in their lives. In many cases, it involves their profession. We have doctors, teachers, um, you know, people from all walks of life, uh, writers, researchers, um, people that, um, uh, you know, are engineers, scientists, all these kinds of things. And uh, most of them will tell stories about what they used to believe and how it was before they took the red pill. Like this lady I mentioned that was uh, a, a sales agent for a large um, pharmaceutical company and finally realized that the, the business model of the pharmacy industry was not to cure, but to treat and to prolong illness so they can make more money. And people like that, when they come to the realization of something like that, they want to tell it, they want to share it. These are the kind of people we have as speakers and presenters on our on our stage. So that's that's what the expo is, is just to introduce people to some of this information. And then they inter they interact with each other and form into little groups that go back to their local communities, communities and set up a campus for Redfield University. And now that's where the action really begins. This a campus is a group of people that would be anywhere from say, you know, 15 to 60 people in that group typically. And they're the ones that become very politically active and that kind of thing in the local community. And you can you could be surprised what 20 or 30 people can do in the local community if they get organized and work together. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to rebuild the system from the bottom up. Do we have enough time to do it? I don't know, but we, we're not looking back. We're looking forward to find out. And if we don't do it, we don't try. We know we don't have enough time. So we think we can do it. What, tell us uh, some, some of the, you said you have speakers and so forth. Are there any names people might recognize that are, that are involved that have spoken before your uh, groups? Well, sure. I'm, uh, in addition to me, uh, some people might recognize me. I'm always there <laughs> talking about something. Uh, of course. That's a... Del, Del Big Tree is. is oh, really yes. yes He's one of our best, uh, most popular uh, presenters. Uh, uh, David Martin has been there quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alex Newman. Um, well-known journalists. Um, then we, we try to bring new faces in. Well, we had Dr. Artis uh, there this time talking about what the heck is in those vaccines. We had Dr. Um, Carrie Madej there, and she talked about her experiences and what she learned about the medical profession being, you know, learning from the inside out and people like that. Uh, all of these, oh, there's one guy uh, who's, he identifies himself as uh, the dad of, um, oh, let's see, it's his, his daughter's name. Oh, golly, I can't think of it. I, let's call it Marie, Marie's dad. Mm -hmm. Her, the daughter was, um, had uh, a, a light case of Down syndrome when she was born. She was uh, technically handicapped, but quite, quite functional, very, very much with it. She had a sense of humor. She knew what was going on all the time, physically active, had a lot of jokes going on all the time. You'd look at her and you say, this, this gal is just perfectly normal. And anyway, she went into the hospital and they killed her. And uh, he's convinced and makes an excellent case proving that they deliberately killed her because she was handicapped. And it's part of a new protocol going through the medical profession to eliminate handicapped people and get them off of the, um, get them off the dole so they don't have to be supported. 
Well, it sounds very much like uh, the, the eugenicist line of thought. So many of our leaders are eugenicists. This exactly. sounds like it's really exactly. Yeah. And at first you say, well, that's impossible in America. But when you look at this guy's case, and he shows you the drugs they gave her, everyone, they gave them to her in sequences and proportions that were totally against everything on the labels of these drugs. Gave her the same drug three times in a row, 20 minutes apart. Each one is potentially fatal and stuff like that, you know? Um, well, people want to know, they're, they're so impressed with you that, uh, do, do you have any, do you take any medication where you don't take medication for mental clarity at 91? Maybe uh, Alex Jones's brain force or something? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't well, take, you don't take any supplements for that because you're, you're, you are. Uh, oh, I take stuff. a lot of supplements. Yeah. A lot of vitamins and minerals and things like that. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's what I do too. That's what I suggest every, everybody, everybody would do. You know, that's what most, it used to be, uh, it didn't drug stores like back, I don't know, more than a hundred years ago. Isn't that what they had there? A natural substance. Uh, they had a bunch of natural supplements in there, didn't they? I think that's what well, they used think, to do. Yeah, the, the drug industry is not that old. I, I don't know when it started, but probably about a hundred years ago. Prior to that, it was herbalists. herbalists. Yeah. That's what people took. And uh, I think they, they did as well, if not better than uh, presently. Well, what, what is your opinion? Alex Jones is very much in the news. He always is, but he especially, and I don't know if you've seen, he had, a, he had an interview that's, uh, it may get end up getting the most views of any interview ever with Kanye West coming uh, on his show in a mask. I mean, very entertaining, if nothing else. But mm -hmm. uh, he's definitely a showman. What, what are your thoughts? I, I don't I, I remember if I asked you if you had ever been on Alex Jones. Did he ever reach out to you? What, what are your thoughts on Alex Jones? Reach out to whom? To, did Alex Jones ever reach out to you to have you on a show? Oh, yeah. I've been on uh, Alex's show about four or five times. Okay. Yeah, great. So what are your thoughts on Alex? Well, you got one heck of an audience. And uh, <laughs> I'm always glad to be on his show. And, uh, of course, everybody wants to know, what do I think about Alex? Well, what is there to think about? He, he is what he is. He's a very bombastic guy. And sometimes I wish he'd calm down a little bit. But what he says, in most cases, I totally agree with. There are a couple of things that I disagree with when he was supporting Trump, for example, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's changed his mind now. But uh, no, I'm glad to be on Alex's show anytime. Well, that's uh, people. Uh, and what I, I mean, I defend him a lot of, and I, you know, because uh, I, I, and I talk about people like you that uh, he gave forums to people like you. And that's probably the biggest forum you ever had. I'm guessing he had millions of millions of people. You can't get a forum anywhere else. So and he had lots of other people, Jim Mars, and uh, that wouldn't have had any other forums. So he had some great guests, and people need to remember that. So he obviously knew. He knows about the Federal Reserve and everything. How many other talk shows uh, are doing that? So I, I, that's that's wonderful. That uh, and he and he, he he understood the subject matter, right? When he was talking to you about the uh, Federal oh, yeah. Reserve, or, yeah, yeah. Alex reads a lot, obviously. I mean, he must have a good research uh, department to. Uh, Back him up, you know. No, he does. So, so at this, so you're, you, you seem like you're actually, you know, you're, you're, you're not, uh, you're not black pilled. Definitely, a lot of the people that I talk to are black pilled at this point. I mean, they don't think there's any hope at all. But you, you still seem to say, remain relatively optimistic. To you, do you hold out hope that your grandchildren or your great grandchildren maybe will have a better world? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That's it exactly, Don. I don't think that we're going to solve this problem 
by the next election. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to solve it probably in my lifetime, and um, but we will solve it. And so do we give up just because we're not going to see it? I don't think we can. I feel a great deal of satisfaction when I go to bed at night. Uh, when I close my eyes, I think, well, what did I do? Oh, yeah. I put another brick in the foundation. Now, this is one more brick, but it's there. It's all cemented in. And tomorrow, I'm going to put another brick on top of it. And it, I realize that there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people like us all around the world doing the same thing. We're putting bricks into the foundation. And we're not aware of it because the foundation is growing very slowly, but it is it is growing. And it's, it's a very, this time around, this time around, we've had enough experience. And if we can record that experience and analyze it and pass the, the wisdom that we learn on to the next generation, they will complete that foundation. They'll put the top on it and uh, they'll do all the things that we were wishing we could live to do ourselves. They will rewrite some of the documents. They will amend them. They will perfect them. And instead of a beta model, we'll have a, a gamma model or something like that. And instead of lasting 150 years, it'll last uh, five or 600 years. And then it'll fall apart. And they'll go through another cycle of history. And then somebody like us will come along and start figuring out what were the flaws, what more needs to be done. And they'll do it again, 600, 700 years from now. And that one, when they finish it, will last maybe 2,000 years. And so the cycle goes. And to be part of that at the very foundational level is very, very gratifying to me. Well, and, and that's wonderful. You have a great attitude. Do you, do you think uh, when you look out on the landscape now, we've kind of, we seem to have been on the precipice of World War III for uh, months now. And I, I just kind of think this is some kind of game or something. Do you, do you think there was actually going to be a World War III? What do you see happening in the, the mess between uh, the Ukraine and Russia? Well, we're, we've been in World War III for a long time. It's not basically military yes. Like that's old yes. And I think, of course, we can never we can never drop our guard or say for certain that they won't get us into a hot war with atomic weapons flying around the place. But I don't think they will. Because I've always viewed atomic weapons as primarily a psych, a psychological weapon. Uh, they can yeah. accomplish more with fear of the atomic bomb than they can with the atomic bomb itself. As long as people are afraid of it, you don't have to blow. You don't have to use it. You just threaten it. And as long as people, again, we're back to this issue of fear. What will keep the American people and the people of the world in so much fear that they won't question what their leaders are doing? supposedly to solve the problem. Well, fear of atomic war is right at the top of the list. You know, if uh, if we're all worried about an atomic war, in addition to COVID, in addition to terrorism, in addition to uh, environmental collapse, and all the rest of these things, but what is left? I mean, we're, we're just worn out. We'll go for anything. Just get us out of here. Put an end mm -hmm. to this. And I think that's the major role of the, uh, the fear of atomic war today. They'll, they'll always do that. They did it during the Cold War. And I think they're going to do it continually. Now, does that mean that I'm sure that they're not going to 
I'm not going to pop one of those things or two. I'm not going to blow up Cincinnati or something. Just to, to, <laughs> what, what the heck do they care about Cincinnati? Maybe a million people <laughs> might perish, but that's nothing to these people. If they did it, there'd be no opposition left, not just in Cincinnati, but anywhere in the world, but especially in America. Nobody would stand up against it. Our leaders who say, we just had an atomic attack and you're questioning our leadership? What kind of yeah. a traitor are you? You know, it, it will work. Yeah. Well, I, I I worry very much about if they. Again, you're right. I I've said for I wrote an article a while back where I said the World War Three has been here at least since the beginning of this COVID thing, and it's and it's a worldwide war. It's a war. The governments of the world are at war with their people, clearly. Yeah. I mean, all over the world. So it's it's already been here. But if they decide to make this thing official, World War Three, I think we can say goodbye to shows like this. Or anything, I, I think they will just clamp down, and everything will be treason. We'll all be insurrectionists because yeah. you know if you're not with us, you're against it. So, really, have to hope that doesn't happen. So, I, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, but that that's all the good reason why they might do it because sure. they would pretty well put the cap on it. Yeah, I mean it's it, it, that they but it, it, like they're using COVID that they're. Maybe this is what they they wanted to take that next step or something because I I'm just amazed that because for so long they've played this game where they try to uh, pretend that they're benevolent and I'm talking about our leaders and they have our welfare in mind when every anybody who's studied politics studied history knows that almost none of them have ever had to mind they're all they have a you know an interest of the powerful or their own interest or whatever but. But they seem to kind of not be doing – it's at this point where they – especially with using this COVID. Do you think this COVID thing is going to go on forever? I mean, I, I'm writing a book on that now, and I don't know how to end it because it just keeps going. And they're talking about – you know, they keep talking about new surges and new strains. I mean, they've, they've just rewritten science. COVID-19 was the 2019 strain of the yearly coronavirus strain. What happened to COVID-20 and COVID-21? We should have COVID-22 now, shouldn't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh they, they they definitely have the plan to go forever with it, and if if they can succeed in that, it'll work pretty well. The trouble is they may wind up with no humans left, but uh, maybe that's their plan too. I don't know for sure. Um, but they have other plans, you know, Don. It's uh, if if there should be such a strong awakening and pushback to the COVID issue that they feel that there are other ways to reach their goal uh, without as much risk to them they'll simply drop the COVID thing for now for now they keep it in the refrigerator and they go to war or uh, to something else i don't know and uh, it could be famine it could be uh, yeah, oh, what yeah happens they, they, if we have an emp attack a phony one but all the grid goes down and the emergency system comes on and the pamphlets are dropped from the air we've been attacked by emp we don't have any electricity. I mean, we don't have any electricity. For how long would it take before it would be over? You know, people would be dying by the millions for lack of water, if nothing else, and killing each other for food. So that's you know, well, they, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to scare anybody, but our enemy thinks about these things. They've got they've got books. They do, but. On this. But you got to keep up with their fear porn. Like I, I, I made a lot out of it, and it's gone. Uh, they had, 
they put the the government put out a, pr- a very ominous pronouncement back uh, sometime in October. But they said basically that we only had enough fuel left for uh, whatever it was. It would have ended on Election Day. They, curiously, they picked that day, and I said, "What? Well, what? You know, if we don't have fuel, Tucker Carlson talked a lot of it, which means the truckers wouldn't be able to deliver anything, wouldn't be able to have heating oil and so forth, and." then you never heard any updates about it. Obviously it's way past election day and nobody's talking about it. Anymore. So do you think sometimes they just throw this out there and it's, uh, it's just designed to instill fear, but it, there's really intention yeah, doing it. They just keep it yeah, out there. Yeah. Keep, yeah, keep the fear. Why do you think they have the TSA at the airports? Yeah. To catch terrorists. No. <laughs> <laughs> How many have they caught? No. It's a multi-trillion-dollar operation been going on for years. They haven't caught a single terrorist that wasn't an FBI plant. Um, mm-hmm. And so, why is it there? It's to keep fear of it in the minds of everybody that travels. Constant fear. Well, that's a, that's there's definitely that. But so, I mean, it's from your from your vantage point of having uh, you know been doing this for so much longer. Um, one thing that you uh, and I probably may have asked some of these questions to you last time, but uh, what's something that you you that surprised you where you didn't see was going to happen when you're studying these things and maybe thinking, okay, this is going to happen? What surprise thing thing happened that you didn't think would happen, and what uh, didn't happen that you thought would happen? Oh well, let me think about it. well the main things that I didn't see the COVID. I mean, I mean, I didn't see the digital currencies which embarrasses me because there are plenty of um, hints along the way, but I didn't see them. So that took me by surprise. Um, I, I always was aware somewhat of the hoax of HIV after a couple of years, but I didn't, I didn't put two and two together and think that they would bring it back and try it again only in spades. So that kind of took me by surprise. And again, I, I'm embarrassed by it because it's such a perfect tool for them. I should have realized that, of course, they're not going to let that go to waste. Um, but aside from that, that's about the only thing that I didn't see coming. The one thing that I saw coming that didn't come is the um, collapse of the economy uh, quite so soon. It's collapsing now, of course. But I thought we would see much worse economic conditions by now than we have. I didn't think they could keep the bubble going bigger and bigger and bigger without bursting. I was wrong. They did. And they did that, of course, by manipulating public opinion. And uh, as long as people believe in the, in the monetary system, they'll continue to use it. And so Americans and Europeans around the world all continued to believe in their currencies and because they saw no other alternative primarily. But nevertheless, they didn't panic and start running for the hills and uh, investing in gold and silver and things like that. So the old currencies remain. So that, yeah, that's about it. pretty, pretty bad record. Those are three out of three things that are major. Absolutely. Items. Well, well, my producer, Tony, we're getting near the end of the show. If he wants to jump in here in a minute, he certainly speaking of gold and silver. Uh, he has, he has all the uh, information on that with wise with silver and gold. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, I value treasure so much, uh, like 
people were mentioning Eustace Mullins and the, and again, I'm sorry over in the Rockfin chat room. I, I don't know what the connection's been better today, but uh, when I bring up the Rockfin chat, it seems to uh, cause problems. So we're going to have to work on that. So I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you. somebody tipped this over there and I don't know who it was even. So I'm sorry. Thanks to everybody over there and uh, everybody, obviously in the YouTube chat. So I'm concentrating on them, but um and again, hello to everybody, Ray Bogusted, Chris Buckin, White Wolf, uh, um, Verica Salt, Salt, Ray Bogusted, uh, probably somebody. Anyhow, um, so at this point, when you think of the names of the past, like somebody like Eustace Mullins, obviously it was influenced to you. Uh, do you think of people that have gone before you and that what they would be thinking of uh, what is happening? And like, because the last two years, it's like, we all saw the trajectory we were on, basically, especially since the JFK assassination. We kind of saw how we were headed in a particular direction, but things have picked up. It's not just the vaccine that's warp speed. This tyranny has become warp speed in the last couple of years. I mean, what do you think caused them? Uh, they used the, the old boiling frog analogy worked for a while. We were, you know, mm -hmm. boiling and, you know, not noticing, but now, boy, I mean, they just decided. They just really ratcheted it up. What What do you think some of the names from the past would have would have thought uh, about that wrote about these kinds of things that you probably knew? Uh, if they could be, you know, come uh, you know, transported to twenty twenty two here, what would they think about this this world that we're looking at here, this Orwellian world? Well, I think they'd be pretty much on the same square that you and I are. They, I mean, how how else can you see it? especially if you understand the mechanisms behind it. I think the primary reason that uh, most people do not see it is because they never thought much about it. It never seemed to them important. They, they trusted that their government and the Federal Reserve System were somehow there to protect them. It was a very complex topic. They couldn't possibly understand it. So isn't it nice that you've got the government and the Federal Reserve there to take care of it for them? Don't bother me with the details. Uh, I think that's pretty much why people are so easily hoodwinked is because they don't understand the basics of money, how it's created and the ramifications of different kinds of money. So um, back to your question, the authors that preceded me, and there were many of them, most of them excellent researchers, uh, they did understand the system. And so therefore they would have to be um, not horrified because they they could understand it. It wouldn't be horrendous. It would just be it would just be uh, unnerving to know that here it is. It's finally here. You know, it's like um, going up the roller coasters. The first thing that popped in my mind: you go click, click, click up the hill, up the hill. You know, <laughs> you're going to get to the top pretty soon. Click, 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 and all of a sudden, now you're rounding over. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Here we go. You know? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, and so I think these guys were on the click, click, click stage of all of that, and uh, yeah, they would have to be in the similar mind frame that we are. Well, Tony is in is in the housing, and Tony, you see, there's a question for you on the screen. Uh, how long would it take for a delivery of a million dollars worth of silver? A million dollars <laughs> worth of silver. Great, great White question, Wolf. White Wolf. Uh, and <laughs> and by the way, the show again. Uh, Fantastic, gentlemen. I, I, I love the uh, this follow-up to the, the previous show that we had. Uh, as far as a million dollars of silver, well, it's better today as far as timeline than it was last month. The, the price rise has uh, 
seeing a little bit of uh, extra silver coming in, um, but there's still a little bit of a delay. I say if you bought a million dollars from me, we had, you know, uh, I think probably somewhere around that uh, in purchases a couple months ago, uh, you'd get it within three weeks. It, it, I mean, maybe two, it, depending on what type yeah. of silver. You got it from a government mint. Like you say, you got uh, uh, Austrian Philharmonics or something like that. We could have that out within a couple of weeks. Cool. Oh, Do you have play. any questions for uh, Mr. Griffin? <laughs> What's that? I said to go. So go ahead and oh, place that try. order, White Wolf. I'll be looking for the order. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you did you have any questions for uh, Mr. Griffin, Tony? Well, no, I mean, not not any questions. I know that you you touched on so much of the subject matter that, that I'm curious. I, I, I want to do a show uh, with Mr. Griffin too. Um, and just because we so much of my life has changed because I read the creature from Jekyll Island. And I, you know, I told you uh, uh, last time you were on, um, Mr. Griffin, that was the same, you know, it was one of those books that really uh, got me to think about the disaster and, and you know, the, the title even that, that, you know, Don just makes that it's just like a 1950s sci fi, you know, it's it really conjures up like the evil that really came out of that. And it truly was. Um, and what fiat currency has done to our reality. And I think the offspring of that like spawn of Satan is really the central bank digital currency at this point, what we're going to see uh, the big push from the bankers around the banksters around the world. Uh, I think it was a couple of days ago, the head of the IMF said that we needed to raise interest rates uh, for the good of the people to protect mankind. And I thought, yeah, because banksters are always altruistic, aren't they? They, they care about the people. They want to raise interest rates for mankind. So um, I, I, that's what my wheelhouse and everything I study is precious metals and parapolitics. It's leading to the central bank digital currency. And I just thank Mr. Griffin so much for his his uh, his work and his courage. And and uh, I look for we'll, we'll have our own show very soon. But this one was one for the one for the archives. Indeed, Don. Great, great program. Oh, it's, it's great. You're, you're just, you're just a treasure, uh, Mr. Griffin. And uh, this, you know, if you thought about writing a, I mean, I can see a sequel to this, like uh, the creature from, uh, I don't know, the world economic forum or something. How would you, how would you describe <laughs> what, what the, what, what the digitalized currency would be? It's like, you know, with these uh, a son of Kong or something like that, or you know, Dracula meets Frankenstein. I mean, what do you, do you, what, yeah. would you consider writing a sequel? <laughs> Well, I don't know about a sequel, but uh, I am definitely going to write a, a new sixth edition. It, the book is in a fifth edition now, but I think we've, with the arrival of the central bank digital currencies, it's time for an update. So my biggest problem is how to condense the significance of that aspect of the story into a few pages, because the book is at the stage now where I have no empty pages to to go into and fill over, spill over. If er, almost every word that I that I uh, want to add to the old book, I have to take out a word somewhere in that chapter, and it's it's going to be quite a challenge where to put that. Because if well, I well, you could you probably write a postscript, couldn't you? Or just a twenty, you know, well, even that even that takes up space. Well, I could do a postscript. You're right. Put it all at the end, but yeah. then that that's a possibility. But these are technical issues I have to consider. It does add to the to the size of the book and to the cost of the book and to the dimensions of the cover 
and the binding and all those things, which are all overcomable. Um, but it'd be better if I could just find a, a way to summarize everything into about three pages, which would be almost impossible. Yeah. And then I could probably delete three pages somewhere and nobody would miss it um, compared to the in new information. Well, you're an, Ameri you're an American treasure. There aren't many American treasures left. So I, I, I really am honored and flattered that you came on my show. You came on my show twice. Um, you know, and I, I would, I just want to say again, thank you. And we're almost out of time. I want to give you the last minute or so to, uh, to, to uh, sum up anything and also to promote anything you want to promote, tell people where to find you or how to get in touch with Red Pill University. Okay. Well, thanks for that, uh, Don. I appreciate it. I guess my closing word is um, if, if you stuck with us this far, you understand we've got a real serious problem on our hands. It's about a serious challenge that anybody will ever have in their lifetime. So it's not something just to say, my goodness, isn't that interesting? I wonder what's going to happen. We all have to get involved in this struggle or we just not might make it. So. I, but I want to say that this is, to me at least, it's no reason for anguish. Well, not total anguish anyway. It's, it, for every ounce of anguish, there's a certain ounce of exhilaration that offsets it. And I'm not just saying that because it sounds good. It's true. It's exhilarating to know that we live in a time where we actually can make a difference in the future of all mankind. Things are happening now that we're placed right there. This is our time. And if we, if we play our cards right and we allocate our own resources right, and we get control of our emotions and our fears and do what we know we have to do, we could make a huge difference in the world. And that should be a very exhilarating thought to you. It is to me. I'm grateful to be living in this particular period of history. I think back, well, it'd be pretty exciting to live in the frontier days. Uh, you know, that would be pretty exciting because you're living on the edge of existence in many cases, but there's no chance there really, not much chance there to change the future of all, uh, of all history like there is today. So anyway, that's my thought for the day. Look at your blessings as well as your, as your challenges. And we have a great blessing here or those of us that have this crusader gene. And as far as uh, what we do, well, if you want more information about what I think is the plan of action, I'll repeat my websites. Come there and you'll find all the information spelled out. Get yourself a cup of coffee, sit down, plan to spend about an hour, something like that, and enjoy. And the three sites are uh, freedomforceinternational.org, redpilluniversity.org, and redpillexpo.org. And that's it. It's all there. Wonderful. Well, that's wonderful. Again, you're you're uh, you're a treasure, and uh, certainly you've done, you've done great work. And and I again, I'm honored and flattered that I have uh, the chance to talk to you. And so is the, the audience uh, I know enjoyed your appearances. Well, let's try to have you back on again. So thanks so much, G. Ever Griffin, American legend. Thanks everybody for listening to I Protest. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Take care.